Support for Best of Belfast comes from listeners just like me who love Northern Ireland and believe we have a better story to tell. A massive thanks to all of you listening who have already joined the Producers Club, especially our Titanic producers, Barclays Eagle Labs, Ulster University, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, Gavin Wall, Peter Dixon, and of course, the Orma Baths team. Today's episode wouldn't exist without you. To find out more about how you can support independent ad-free media, get invitations to live podcasts, and submit questions to our guests, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Thanks so much, and really hope you enjoy today's show. All right, guys, what is cracking? Happy Monday morning to you all. Got an absolutely incredible conversation and incredible interview to share with you guys today. But what I think is most interesting, most intriguing about today's show is the fact that the gentleman involved doesn't think that he has a story to share at all. Now, you'll clearly see that this is complete and utter nonsense. Gareth Quinn is the co-founder of two incredibly successful businesses here in Northern Ireland, the first one being Digital DNA and the second one most recently being Kairos. But he claims that his road to success was completely unplanned and somewhat unexpected. So after scraping his way through school, as he described it, Gareth grew up working in factories, bars, call centers before eventually landing a job with Belfast City Council. And honestly, the rest, that's his story to tell. And he tells it incredibly well in today's episode. Throughout our conversation, we kind of track Gareth's incredible story, picking out the important details along the way to see and kind of explain how I think he's got to where he is today. We start in Castle Wellen in his childhood. We go right the way up into the mid-90s, early 90s, where he's playing around and messing around on his cousin's computer all the way up to the present day. What I loved most about my conversation with Gareth is actually how he believes the secret to his success has been taking a genuine approach and developing genuine relationships with the people he's come in contact with along the way. So that's what we spend most of the time talking about, how you and I listening to this conversation can apply that to our lives. How can we develop relationships that matter? So that's enough for me. Without further ado, it's time to welcome to your ears the one and only Gareth Quinn. Hi, my name is Gareth Quinn and you're listening to The Best of Belfast. Alright guys, what's the crack? My name is Matthew Thompson and welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that celebrates our wee country, Northern Ireland. Each episode gives you the opportunity to get to know and learn from some of the incredible people who call this place home through our unfiltered conversations. The show is brought to you from our recording studio in Ormo Bath, Sparkly Eagle Labs, a co-working space right here in the heart of the city centre. Make sure you don't miss out on our weekly stories as they go live every Monday morning by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. You can also join our email newsletter crew at bestofbelfast.org to have episodes delivered to your inbox, along with some other top secret news content and info. That's it for me for now. Time to jump straight into today's episode with this week's local legend. Really hope that you enjoy. Starting up where we left off, take control of this night, light it up, light it up. I'm actually, I lived longer in an even more rural environment than Castle Wellen, so that's where my mum and dad just bought the first house, um, it's Castle Wellen just outside Newcastle, uh, you know, born there, lived there for a few years, but then moved across the moors to a place called Addy Call, so if you think Castle Wellen is rural, <laughs> Addy Call, it was just fields around us, you know, we were right at the foot of the Mourne Mountains. Unbelievable. Um, which was which was amazing, you know, and that, like, it's, I live in a place now outside Saintfield called Dara Cross, which is a wee village, quite like where I lived before. And it was brilliant for me, you know, like you just literally bombed across the fields, that's what you did, you know, and you, you spent your Saturdays over in the football pitch, you know, with, with all, all the friends, that's just where you congregated, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, even you're saying, about, you know, being involved in tech from Castle Wellen, a good friend of mine is now one of the top guys in Google in Dublin, you know, he's, he lives in Castle Wellen now, he travels up and down every Unbelievable. day. He, and he's, 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 travels uh, down. He travels down, he's a director there, so he... Uh, he works out of, uh, he, he works from home one day a week, you know, and then gets the train from Newry and he's working on the train for the, wherever it is, the hour, the hour and a half from Newry down. So just show you, just, again, doesn't matter where you are, you it's know, work from anywhere. Something in the water, Castle Wellens, where it's at. Aye, it's true, actually, <laughs> yeah, 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 it's true. Unreal. So the question we always kind of like to start off with purely just to 
give us an idea and contextualize you for the people listening is if you walk into an elevator, Big Liam Neeson standing there, how do you introduce yourself up on that quick wee ride? Do you know what? My, I'm rubbish at that, you know, to be honest. Um, <laughs> the pitches? <laughs> yeah, like if, I was, if I was in front of someone like Liam Neeson, I'd be sitting thinking to myself, right, everybody pitches to this guy. You know, I'm just going to have the crack with him. Yeah. That would be my tactic. You yeah. Know? I know it doesn't give you the answer that you want. I, but, it's uh, the answer that you give. It's perfectly. That's it. That's what I would be doing, you know, with someone like that. You know, I would always try and think to myself, right, you know, what, what, what do people normally do here and how do you stand out a little bit differently, you know? But uh, if Liam said to me, here, Gareth, tell me what you do, which is obviously, you know, very likely he would ask me that question. I would just say to him, yeah, look, I'm in, I'm in Belfast. I'm working on a new venture at the moment, you know, which we're, we've, uh, which we're just getting off the ground, I guess, you know, and it's starting to gain a bit of traction. Uh, and historically worked out of Belfast after going to university for, uh, for the guts of 15 years, you know, sort of, you know, doing things I never thought I would be doing uh, and all quite random, but now, uh, starting to focus on a new venture, which is exciting. Unbelievable. And your journey, as they always say, I, the last person I interviewed, actually, we were having a, a bit of crack about the word journey because that's what everyone's talking about. Oh, your journey. What's your journey like? But I would just like to start with your journey. And, you know, so you start in Castlewell and, and really take us from there. So rural background and how have you arrived, quote unquote, because you're always still going, of course, to where you are at, at the minute. Yeah, a lot of ground to cover. You want me to call it <laughs> Castlewell? Um, yeah, so um, like mum and dad were, were were born south down. You know that's, that 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 was home. Um, still is. Mum and dad still are living there, and um, you know they were mum sort of working in a in a in a health centre in Kilkeel actually, while we lived in Castlewell, and so a lot of travelling across the moors. And my dad, I just remember one of my first memories of my dad working was sort of down a, an eight foot hole, digging holes in the ground. He used to work for the the road service or, or whatever it was called back then. So that was a sort of you know the the, the mother and father that we had. Two sisters, uh, we moved across the Mourns into a wee village called Addy Call, which is where my mum was from. Mum and dad built a house there and then spent, that was, that was home then for, for until I left to go to university. And I, I went to local primary school. Um, can't really remember much about that, but the secondary school, I was just a guy who sort of scraped by really, you know, it was there for a good time. Wasn't too focused on results to the chagrin of my mum. <laughs> um, so yeah, just uh, through through school, um, great time in school, um, really really good time. You, you don't appreciate it until it's all all gone. But uh, scraped through GCSEs, you know, and and scraped through uh, A levels. Then after that, you know, I was telling a story there during the week about how GCSEs. I wanted to go on and do computing, which was after um, you know spending a lot of time in my cousin's house, whereby back then we. We, uh, this is back in the mid nineties, you know, he had this uh, ability of being able to access, uh, current websites back then that arguably you shouldn't have been accessing. <laughs> so, uh, uh, as in uh, being able to hack them and, and change, you know, just change little things about these websites. Yeah, it was crazy. all good fun, all yeah. done with you know, nothing too serious. But that really got me into sort of having a bit of an idea about the, the opportunity that tech had. But, uh, whenever I, you know, scraped through GCSE, I remember getting this, uh, what was it, a, a C in mathematics and I needed mathematics to get the university. And I was like, right, I'll do A level mathematics. And the vice principal was like, look, if you do a C in, and if you do a mathematics A level, you're going to drop two grades, then E. And I was like, what would he know? So I went and did the A levels. Sure enough, I came out with an E in mathematics, oh, you know. Man. <laughs> but again, didn't get into the computer science degree course that I wanted, but got into a computing and information course. And, and again, just scraped into that. Realized early on that, you know, that the people who actually held the, the key to those courses was the admin staff in the, in the computing offices. Uh, so went and befriended them and ended up getting in, you know, so. Yeah, that was, that's the history of sort of back home, but just typical childhood, you know, enjoying sport, enjoying the countryside, uh, just and enjoying that uh, sort of nice community, uh, community feel of being brought up. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm not trying, this question will seem that I'm trying to date you maybe more than you're, you deserve, but when was your first exposure to like a computer? Do you remember that? Yeah, it was. I was sort of joking there about my, my cousin and that, you know, so he was big into his computers, but that would have been around sort of maybe 90, I'd say maybe 94, 93, 94. And that was whenever sort of very primitive websites were starting to form. You know, if you look back at them now, you know, very, very, very old school. Um, but all of a sudden you were having access to information. You were able to Google stuff. And uh, this cousin of mine was very proficient in computers, you know. So, um, you know, he was just pretty much sitting there coding, playing, playing these games, creating his own games, you know, just through, uh, through a PC back in, say, 94, it must have been. So that was the first time getting exposed to it. And then for me personally, then my, uh, Santa Claus got us a Gateway 2000 computer. So I don't know when that would have been. That would have been probably, <laughs> what, maybe 96, 97, maybe. And that was just amazing, you know, and the, the size of this thing, it was just a monster, you know what I mean? I and, bet, you know, yeah. Back then, you know, so that was me then getting my first computer, you know, and, uh, 
and then just literally just starting to play about with things, you know. But I wasn't the hard like I was, you know, kids now. Like my my uh, eldest fella, who's nine at the minute, so he's online now, you know, playing these games that learn him how to code. You know what I mean? And he's enjoying them. So I wasn't doing that as such, you know. I wasn't getting into the detail of it where my cousin was. We just started to get an appreciation for technology and just getting, I don't know, blown away by this really cool piece of technology and what it did. Yeah. So you weren't necessarily into the the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of tech. But you clearly were interested because that seems to be what you wanted to do from an academic perspective. Yeah, I think it was. And again, like it was, you know, I never, I never sat down. You know, the, you know, careers offerings in school <laughs> is pretty poor, to be fair. And you know, I never sat down and actually worked it out methodically and decided what it was that I wanted to do. You know, but of all the things that I was doing, bearing in mind you had mathematics, English, history, politics, all these different subjects. The one that was probably the, the coolest was the computing one. You know what I mean? So yeah, for yeah. me, that's just where I sort of gravitated to. Uh, and I really back then I had no idea what it was that I wanted to do. You know what I mean? None looking back. Um, and computing was just that thing that I just knew a little, like a tiny little bit about. So that's where I gravi- gravitated towards. Yeah. And then, so you've left high school, secondary school. What happens next? Yeah. So left, left, left that and uh, went to Belfast, uh, independence of first year up in Belfast doing this computing information uh, studies course at, uh, at Jordanstown, which was a really good course actually. But my problem was that um, uh, independence kicked in, you know, and being up in Belfast at 18, 19 years of age. The big smoke. The big smoke, yeah. I actually started playing football for um, Georgetown Gaelic team that year. We had a great year, brilliant, you know, lots of training, lots of heavy training, but uh, quite a bit of socialising with it as well. And we done well. We, we got an all medal out of that. Uh, we being a, a squad member, not not I wouldn't have been as as good as the, most of the guys, but it was a squad member. It's awesome. Uh, all Ireland medal from that, which was great. You know, all really Ireland fair play. Yeah, it was freshers, yeah, but it was still still good for someone like me to get. And uh, but yeah, university wise, just failed miserably. You know, failed everything. And the frustrating thing was back then, sort of learning, you know, to play the game. I had friends uh, who also failed as miserably. The difference was they weren't going to class, so their attendance was terrible. Mm. But I went to class, so I would have been at the back of the room, not paying much attention, maybe sleeping. Yeah. But because my attendance was so good, yeah. they looked at those guys and said, well, the logic for them not achieving is because they weren't there. Yeah. This dumb Egypt was actually there and still <laughs> feel as badly. So they looked at it and said, he's just not capable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they wouldn't even let me repeat the year. I had to drop into HND uh, at that stage, which was brilliant. And I thought at that point in time, um, I will uh, you know, do a part time. So we did that, and then I can't remember randomly, but while I was doing that, I was working for a bar in Belfast at the time, doing barman in a bar. So always worked all my life, even whenever we were back home, you know, working in recycling factories, working in uh, uh, making char screens for 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 a glass company, <laughs> through to working in a fish factory, to working in Safeways back then. But whenever I came to Belfast, it was just a natural thing to do was to get a job. So I got yeah. a job in a bar, and then. Again, that's sort of the, the tech side of it. It was second year university. Just started to get more inquisitive about the world and how it was working and had this pretty primitive idea to set up a website, which was called BelfastTonight.com. So we're number two in the middle, N-I-T-E. And the idea was, well, I'm going to, the idea was to use this website to promote to students the, the nightlife that was going on in Belfast. Yeah. Burn in mind the previous year, I'd researched it to. Uh, <laughs> you were well schooled. Well your PhD at that stage. <laughs> exactly. So we set that up and the idea was that each bar would pay a pound a day to be on this platform, 30 pound a month. And what I would do then is go around each of these bars, find out from them what drinks promotions they, that they had and go in with a camera and take pictures. And then all of a sudden you would drive that traffic back to the website because they would go on for the promotions and also to see the picture of them there the night before. Class. So uh, that was one of the things in early, early, early doors. In the you were ahead of your time in subscription service. Look at that. <laughs> Software, SaaS, come on. I, def- I definitely wasn't describing <laughs> it like that back in the day. Um, and it was grand. We, and it, and it, we got a number of bars, especially the independent bars, signed up. I remember taking it to a company called uh, Wine Inns. They owned the company that I worked in, the parlor bar. Took it to them. I remember wearing my dad's uh, suit and everything to go and present this to, to Wine Inns <laughs> out in Duncrew, I think it was presented this idea to them and they had something like, I don't know what it was, maybe eight or nine bars in Belfast at the time. So to get them on board would have been a game changer. Yeah. And it was actually one of the managers that encouraged me to do that. And I remember going down to them, pitching this idea. God knows what I, what I pitched to them. Um, and then it went quiet, you know, mm. and didn't know then you had to chase it up and all the rest and, you know, to put pressure on to try and get a sale closed or whatever. I hadn't a clue. And then what happened was um, it must have been Three months later, I went into the parlor bar one night and uh, we got a new uniform. So we they were like these black T-shirts with red font. 
and across the back, across the shoulder, if you like, of the of the T-shirt was BelfastPubsAndClubs.com. Oh. Um, so straight home that night after work onto this website, BelfastPubsAndClubs.com, and it was a website promoting bars and oh, clubs in Belfast. dude. So it stung a wee bit. That's again, gotten. <laughs> yeah, again, but like what I did, then decided to do the next day was just was defeated, you know, so just dropped it and didn't yeah. go any further with it, you know. Whereas uh, you learn a little bit more and you go, right, well, you know what, it's called competition. you got to yeah. get, get up to it. So, but like I was a learning critic. I remember borrowing my mum's camera, you know, which actually had a film in the back yeah. and bringing that into these bars and clubs and taking pictures and then going to the chemist and getting, Unbelievable. you know, so, and then scanning the images and then uploading them. Yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah. that's last. But again, the website looked, looking back now, it didn't look anything great, but uh, that was the sort of first foray into, into business. Did that degree at the HND, so I'm rambling on a wee bit. No, this, it, is it, what, this is what you're here to do, so keep going. <laughs> did the HND, it was part-time. There was supposed to be a placement year, but I just thought, get it done. Uh, so didn't do the placement year, and then I think probably about a year in there, I got a job then, uh, working for a company or an organisation called the Electoral Office. That was the sort of first fray in the public sector, which was never planned. Also was working for a company called GEM at the time. It's now called Concentrix. Uh, we've... Uh Carol Fitzsimons was on yeah. the show and she was a big part of Gem, yeah. Exactly. So yeah. Uh, Carol and myself have done lots of work together over this past few years. Nice. Carol's an absolute legend. Uh, doesn't get anywhere near the credit she deserves. But it only was probably about last year that we started chatting with Gem and then I realised I was there at the same time <laughs> as her. So whenever I started doing this HND, I thought, right, I'll get a job. So I got the, that government governmental job, the public sector job. And that was Monday to Friday. And then I was working in Jam on a Thursday and a Friday night and then on a Saturday. Wow. And that was a Tourism Ireland contract. So the Ryder Cup was just coming up. So I spent my time chatting to Americans who were busting to come over to the Ryder Cup. It was, it was great. But uh, so that was me then into the, the big bad world of, of work. And I suppose the, the relevance of that is that this public sector thing, which was never, ever the plan. It was never not the plan either, but it was never the plan. That sort of kicked off. And all of a sudden I was getting paid 10 grand a year. Uh, it's probably going back what two thousand and one ish and around then, um, ten grand a year. It's good ten. <laughs> it wasn't bad. Well, for me, like I had no money. Do you know what I mean? I was at the wee job yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in the bar, and all of a sudden, then I was earning this money, and it was, and it was great. And my friends were still studying, so I yeah, was getting yeah. money through the door, you know, which, was, which was good. <laughs> um, so got that. Ten, my, my job was just processing like literally hundreds of thousands of forms. So every time someone completed a registration form, the organisation was the electoral office. I was the guy typing in the name, national insurance number, wow. date of birth. Oh, God. And then every Friday we would audit it to make sure we got it right. So it was, it was, uh, it was character building stuff. And then, like, again, you know, people talk about luck, whatever you want to call it. This job came up for North and West Belfast, looking after pretty much all registrations and all elections in North and West Belfast. In 2001, Belfast was a difficult place for elections, primarily because of having so many interfaces, which meant people having to cross interfaces to have to vote from one community into another community. Um, and the salary for the job was 15 grand, you know, for this responsibility. Oh, man. Which is, yeah, on one hand, big dough for a 21-year-old kid, but on the other hand, it was just re- re- pathetic money for the responsibility. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that worked to my advantage because no one wanted the job. <laughs> and I genuinely went for it. Um for experience and ended up getting the job. Um, and anyway, so that was me then getting deeper into this public sector stuff, you know, running elections, making decisions back then that I would definitely not make now. Do you know what I mean? And they were just based on logic and whatever common sense at the time, but not really having an understanding for the risk implications of doing certain things. Now there was nothing. They were just little decisions which ended up working out, but on another day mightn't have done. Um, which sort of helped me then gain a reputation for wanting to make a bit of change, if you like. Um, so that was that. Did that for a couple of years and then got a job in City Hall, Belfast, uh, which was, um, again, very, very random in the Lord Mayor's office. Um, and the, the sort of angle there was the event side of it. So I didn't realize it. But back then I was doing events. The event was the elections and all these different things that we were doing around that. And then all of a sudden, Lord Mayor's office was looking after events, civic events, the big events around the city, internal events trying to advise the Lord Mayors of the day, advising them on engagements you'd be doing, helping dr- deliver uh, initiatives that the Lord Mayor had, writing speeches, which I'd never done before, all this <laughs> sort of mad stuff. Um, and I ended up getting that gig and uh, doing that. I was in Lord Mayor's office probably for about four years. Really enjoyed it. Was given loads of responsibility by a great boss uh, in there as well. Uh, built up really close relationships with the Lord Mayors. Some of them were just phenomenal individuals, you know, and, and uh, a real joy to work with. And then moved into arguably a more strategic role in, in City Hall, uh, more aligned to helping the parties uh, across all parties, not aligned to any particular one, um, working with them all. And I ended up being in there for about 10 years, really, you know. So wow. that was a long time. So that was my people. And that's the bit that's weird. People sort of see 
the stuff that I'm doing now and going, well, how you spent 10 years of your life in the public sector? But that's how it all came about. And at the time, huge frustration at times, but looking I back bet, now, yeah. it was, it was, it was just what I needed, you know? So this is interesting, right? Cause I, I'll be honest, like whenever I kind of heard all about the, uh, city hall stuff and working for the Lord Mayor and public sector, <clears throat> I too was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like what, what's happening here? in terms of the tech that you're involved in now. But as you've kind of laid it out, and whether you've done so intentionally or not, there's the building blocks are there. As in, here you are working in a call center, basically perfecting the art of conversation with probably influential, wealthy people. I don't know. I'm, I'm just taking a guess here. Then at the same time, here you are planning events, quite major events, aka elections and beyond. And so actually those two things combined with your love for tech from your childhood, it kind of seems like all the ingredients were there. Someone just had to come along and kind of mix it all together. Is that fair? I think so. Whenever you lay it out like that, you know, there's, there was never a whiteboard of a plan here. Do you know what I mean? I think <laughs> like everybody, everybody, no matter like anybody who's listening to this right now will think, well, what am I doing today? And we'll be able to associate that with developments that they had in their past, you know, and yes, you know, outline it like that. You can clearly see that, you know, the, the, the path, but there was never a plan that way, you know, and yeah, yeah, even as you put it, I never once have ever thought about those conversations with those very wealthy Yanks, you know, who just had the crack with pretty much yeah, on yeah. these calls, you know. Yeah. Um, but then likewise, like I spoke with my dad, you know, early days working in the road service and he then went on and, and he set up his own business and he became uh, selling double glazing windows, you know. I know double glazing window salesmen get a bit of a bad rap, but I remember going out with my dad, you know, drinking uh, Lucasade and Tater Crisp <laughs> back in the day whenever kids could do that sort of stuff. And literally, I went out with him whenever he was doing sales calls. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like thinking back now, like my dad's approach was a very genuine approach. Like the amount of times people would say to him, but look, I'm getting this quote a little bit cheaper. And my dad would say, well, if you're getting it cheaper and you, and you, and you can, they can stand over the work that they do, why would, why would you go with us? Yeah. You know what I mean? And that very genuine, no BS approach to things, you know, and so things like that probably stand in as good a stead. And the other side of it was, I'm pretty sure it wasn't lost in my dad bringing a little four-year-old or a seven-year-old into a house was a little added advantage, you know, of, of, uh, trying to get the <laughs> good sale. leverage, isn't it? So exactly. So with the, the whole the whole selling side of it as well and using whatever to your advantage, you know. So yeah, like there's, there's lots of wee things that, you know, that all sort of come together, but I'm not going to sit here and pretend that oh, it was all part of a master plan. It certainly wasn't. Yeah. The other thing that I've just written down here that I think is really interesting is you talked about, it was back whenever you were trying to get into uni and you said you realized it was the gatekeepers that basically decided whether or not you were going to get in. Yeah, and yeah. That was really interesting what you did. You saw the opportunity that actually for you to get access to what it is you wanted, it's actually learning to play the game with the gatekeepers. And I don't know if you've consciously ever kind of like pulled that together, but I would say a big part of the success of digital DNA and all these other things has actually been your ability to have conversations, have a really genuine approach and learn how to add value and deliver what the gatekeepers are looking for, playing the game effectively. Yeah, I think so. And like, I can't remember how I got to know that they were the. Use the term, yeah, term I'm sure you never said gatekeepers, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. no, definitely, definitely not. I don't even know how it came about, but it, I remember being in their office, and I remember like just literally this high counter and having a chat with these two lovely ladies about it, and then being a little bit blasé about having to go through the process and having to wait and all the rest. And then probably just being inquisitive, but asking them what, what was the process, thinking, well, how, you know, like if there's a process here, you know, and everybody's in the process, how can I be different than everybody else in the process? And then working out that they were actually the people who were going to be making the decisions at the end of it. And in effect, I shouldn't probably arguably have got into that course with the grades that I had. But like these two lovely ladies um, who were working behind the desk and were literally doing an amazing job, no doubt, in that computer science building out in, in, in Ulster University, had the ability to say who was going to go into a certain course and who yeah. wasn't. So, and likewise, you know, I guess, I guess like anything, whenever you're in sales, you know, the key thing is to, is to get the deal done, you know, and the reality is there'll be a decision maker who can make a decision and the, you know, the logic tells you, you need to get to the decision maker. Yeah. The amount of times where I have spoken to someone, tried to, you know, tell them what was the win, what was the, the you know, the, what was the sell, what was the, the, the key things that, that, that they could get from this, whatever proposition it was. And the hope that they then went and represented that as good as I could to their boss. And it was never going to happen. Yeah. So all of a sudden you had a buffer. So the key thing was getting the decision maker. I had no idea what I was doing back in Jordan's yeah, 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 yeah. uh into that course. But 
like since then, you know, that's the key thing with anybody is get the decision maker, qualify the lead, put the value proposition in front of them, understand what their pain point is, put the value proposition in front of them, and then try and get the point where you can get a deal done. So this is interesting enough to park here for a wee while. How do you go about finding the decision maker and getting that person into the room? I think this it's it's just it's just research, it's just working out, you know. Like the digital DNA thing was a massive learning curve, you know. So like, you know, people see, oh, this guy had this uh, history in the public sector. Um, you know, not that anybody cares, but if, you know, if people did look deep enough, they would see a certain, you know, climbing of promotions in there and on a on a decent path. Um but and then this digital DNA thing and on, it's this really cool brand. There's a couple of thousand people go over two days in St. George's Market, isn't this great? This guy's nailed it, right? But what people don't realize is, you know, is the mistakes that get made along the way. You know, mm. people don't realize that like a year out, uh, I left City Hall in September 2013. Digital DNA happened actually just that, that month. The very first ever event happened that month. And I went into this thing called consultancy. <laughs> I, um, consultancy for me was just the C word. <laughs> yeah. Whereby you were helping companies and you were able to invoice at the end of the month. <laughs> and it was a completely, like a complete unknown to me. You know, and I remember taking on like, I think it was, I took on like five and a half days worth of work as a consultant working across three different organizations thinking, you know, I'm better and I'm faster than most people out there. I'll nail this, but not realizing that one day of consultancy actually is 1.5 days of consultancy Aye. by the time you do everything else that you need to do. So like, that was great for the first four months, you know, and the money was even better than what I was getting in Belfast City Council, but it just unraveled and I mm. hadn't a clue what I was doing. Um, and I remember just sitting for hours at night in like a wee office stroke bedroom that I had, like pretty much flicking between screens on a computer, trying to work out what do I do? And I hadn't got a notion. Fast forward a year, financially you know, burnt, you know, done, like, you know, and in, a, in a really difficult place. People yeah. have been in far worse places than I was in, granted, but really difficult place. And, uh, you know, so the thing about it is you're saying, how do you work out, how, how do you work out to get to the decision maker? With all things in business, for me, you know, people might do it a lot quicker than I did, but by just making mistakes after mistakes. Yeah. And after going and chatting to the wrong person, you know, five times in a row and getting demoralized yeah. by it, there's a certain <laughs> desperation where you just say, hold on, this needs to change, you know? Yeah. And the thing for me with it is, right, well, look, and even thinking back and going, you know, trying to go and sell to someone without actually having a proper understanding of myself of what the value proposition was. So in the early days of digital DNA, trying to sell sponsorship, you know, what, what do they get in return? You know, and the the difference that we've sort of brought in the digital DNA was back then, which wasn't that long ago, 2013, people were paying stupid money to have their name on a banner on a screen. Mm. You know what I mean? And I took umbrage of that and thought, well, look, you need to be getting more value, more yeah. return on investment for the money you're putting in. So for me, you start trying to find, right, well, what am I trying, what, what's the value here, right? So what can I provide others, right? Well, what type of companies are they that are out there? You know, around Belfast, it was the Deloitte's of this world. It was the BT's of this world, NYSE Technologies, for example. And they may have wanted just brand profile in the market. They may have wanted to try and acquire talent in the market, which is a huge thing now. They may have wanted customers in the market. Yeah. And once you figure that out, then in terms of what the value proposition could be, and what the win potential win was for them, then you worked it back and said, well, who's the key people in the organization to try and talk to? Yeah. And back then, like, you know, you kissed a lot of frogs in meeting random people. Like I spent pretty <laughs> much three years of my life in a coffee shop, like Harlem coffee shop, like anybody who would have known me, that's where I would have been. Yeah, yeah. Just meeting people, trying to understand how that crazy world worked. And then to get to a point whereby you realize that the most important thing in business, above, in my opinion, everything else is relationships. And mm. I know it's cliche to the hilt, but what then I realized was that the person in these organizations who I had no chance of getting near, somebody else that I knew was good friends with them or just yeah. on a deal with them or was working with them or supplying them. And for me, it was the relationship piece. So I realized, well, you know what? If I have a really strong, genuine you know, network or relationships, whatever way you want to call it, then I can arguably utilize that to get access to these individuals. Then it was on me to sell and get the, get the deal done. Yeah. So that's how it started to develop. But that 2013, 2014, even in the 2015 like there was a lot of, you know, wasted conversations. You know, there's a lot of sort of, you know, making mistakes and learning as I went. But the relationship pieces were sort of tied all that together. If that, I don't know if that makes sense. But no, it's, it's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. And to kind of backtrack a wee bit, let's go back to you're still in City Hall. How did the digital DNA come about? Like what gave you that, number one, the idea, but then I suppose more second, more secondary, like the drive to actually go out and do that and take the risk and you know, plunge into that? Um, the, the second half of the question is easy, but, you know, people talk about, you know, like nice words like the drive and the bravery and <laughs> you took that courage. risk and uh, courage and all that. <laughs> Honestly, there was none of that there. There really wasn't. Um, 
2012, I started getting itchy feet in, in City Hall. And, you know, like I was in a, a really good salary then. And we had three kids. Um, and the most sensible thing for me to do, uh, the bravest thing, arguably, you know, with the family and the mortgages and all the things that we all have was to stay. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I was in a, in a pretty senior position in there at a relatively young age. And that yeah. would have been the brave, courageous thing to do. Um, but, you know, through a conversation, one, one conversation with, with, uh, a lady in particular, and she just blew it. And she says, you know, you're, you know, she just blew that mindset out of the water staying there for me. You know, and that was really where I went, right. Okay. Let's give this a go. What did that conversation go like? That conversation was a weird, weird conversation that I'd been asked to go and speak, um, uh, with a, a lady called Kim Johnston, who was, um, a career coach, uh, stroke headhunter back then. And I remember meeting her up in the Crescent. Um, up in Belfast. So I was a guy in city council, pretty much living within a wee bubble. I started to get involved in a thing called the MBA Association, which was my first sort of foray. I was after doing a course in university, first foray out of the council, out of the, uh, the arguable bubble of the, of the city hall. And I can't remember how I came across this lady, but, uh, she invited me up for a cup of coffee. And really what I did was I went up there for an affirmation that me staying in Belfast City Hall was the best thing for me. But at that point in time, I was hugely frustrated. And, you know, whenever I looked ahead, the roles that I was looking up at, I was looking at them going, none of them excite me. Yeah. And really what I wanted from her was an affirmation that I was on the right track and a bit of guidance into how I could go and attack those positions really and, and grow within the organization. Um, and she just blew it out of the water entirely, you know, and she didn't tell me to do anything, but she just asked me questions. She just said things like, so whenever you go home from work at the moment, how happy are you? You know, do you go into the house excited? You know, do you tell your wife what you've been up to? You know, are the kids excited, you know, excited to hear what you've been up to? And the answer to all that was no. And I went <laughs> into the, the, the house and I don't want to talk about work at all. Yeah. Um, and she was saying, right. I said, well, look, you know, you're saying that you want to stay there, grow in there and not be the best thing from your family and for your kids perspective. Are your kids going to be inspired at you doing that in 10 years, 20 years time? And uh, if you're coming home the same way, or are they going to be inspired that you're out doing something different, which excites you? And it was as simple as that. You know, and I went back yeah. going, well, you know what? Sounds pretty good to me. I might have a wee look outside of city county. And that was the start of around 2012. So the whole, I know you're saying about the drive and the passion. Again, I'd be lying here if I was saying, oh, you know, it was this and it was that. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was a go-getter and all the rest. It, it, it wasn't that, you know, and a lot of it was probably born out of frustration. And, you know, it sounds as if I'm, it was frustration for me. Like whenever I worked in City Hall, there was like a, a, a bunch of amazing people. Like the work the City Council and Belfast is doing. You look around the city, you can see it. Yeah, big time. But just for me, it just wasn't sitting well with me, you know, in terms of that role. And I wasn't getting excited by it. So, um, how did it all come about? Back to the Lord Mayor's office days. Again, very, very primitive stuff. I would have been organizing events. So for me, there were a couple of things were happening. One, by working in the Lord Mayor's office, you gained this sort of civic pride for the city of Belfast. And you got to know the city unbelievably well. You know, on one hand, you'd be working in a delegation, you know, foreign direct investment uh, delegation coming in from God knows where, New York or whatever. And I wasn't welcoming them, the Lord Mayor was welcoming them. <laughs> but you would have been part of that whole setup. Yeah, yeah. And in the next minute, you'd be with the Lord Mayor, uh, you know, launching a community uh, a community um, uh, initiative in a deprived area in Belfast. So you got to know the city really, really well. Uh, and you got a really good understanding then of how the city ticked and again, how the city didn't tick in some areas and the imbalance that existed in different things. And you also got an idea of how the vast majority of the councillors that were there and the staff actually wanted to make some really good stuff happen. Yeah. So you got this civic pride. So that was one thing. And there was a simple thought in my head, which came from um, some of the studies that I'd done. I'd done a course in university around 2008, which is more business focused. And it was a simple concept, which was the more wealth that we bring into Northern Ireland, the more you start to dilute some of that socioeconomic political issues that we have. And I keep caveating that by saying so long as the right decisions are being made by the, you know, our government. But, um, so that was the thinking behind it. And like the only way you can, well, there's a number of ways, but one of the main ways that you can increase the money coming into a country is through export. Mm. So the idea was, well, if we can harness technology better here and start to look at uh, exporting services and products globally, we bring more wealth into Northern Ireland and then it has that effect. So that was a bit of a grand idea that I there had. I was yeah. driven a bit by that civic side of things. So, um, that was a bit of a driver. Um, then what you had was whenever I organized an event in Lord Mayor's office, right, whether it be an event focused around suicide awareness, for example, or economic development or, or homelessness or whatever it was, two things happened, right, because you were so immersed in it. Bear in mind, you're writing a speech for the Lord Mayor of the day. You're advising them on, on the conversation <laughs> to have, who's going to be in the room. You're making sure that there was no developments that particular week, which would mean something that he was going to say would be outdated or she was going to say would be outdated. 
So you're, two things happen. You built up a pretty sound knowledge base in a very short space of time about a particular subject matter. And secondly, you built up relationships with the individuals involved. Yeah, totally. So taking that then, you know, and, and then one of the most powerful things that I've seen was dinners that took place and receptions in the Lord Mayor's Parlour. Whenever people think about dinners in the Lord Mayor's Parlour, they think, oh, you know, these fancy dinners, crystal cut glass, you know, <laughs> the fancy cutlery, et cetera. That's what know. I thought of, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and definitely. And the probably days of old, that's what the parlour, the Lord Mayor's Parlour would have been used for. But the good thing was that whenever I was, whenever I was coming in, not by me, but the parlour was being opened up to people who had never been in to see it. And you got a real eclectic mix of individuals in there, which was phenomenal to see. Um, but what you realised was there was 28 people sat around the Lord Moore's uh, parlour table and they'd be sitting together for maybe two to three hours. And my job would have been to try and help organise that, make sure the right people in the, were in the room, the Lord Mayor was briefed, etc. And then I would have been the guy just sitting in the corner, nice. just in case something happened. You know, yeah, not at yeah. the dinner table, but sitting in the corner. But you started hearing the conversations that were happening and you started hearing people saying, well, do you know what? Let's pick that up later on. And you heard people, you know, suggesting a problem or suggesting an opportunity and the other person picking up on it. And all of a sudden you heard this wee plan mm. for a minute between the two individuals or, or even more as a table, some of the discussions that were going on. So in the Lord Murr's parlour, through that, through the events, you built up a knowledge base. And then you also realised the importance of relationships. That, and that's what I've seen. So look, again, really ignorantly, I thought, well, do you know what? If I want to try and help businesses harness technology grow internationally because of that, you know, civic stuff which I mentioned at the start. Yeah. And I personally, selfishly, want to try and look at a world outside City Hall, um, which builds up my knowledge and relationships in business and technology. Wouldn't it be cool to do a technology event that looks at how businesses can harness technology? Yeah. And that's where digital DNA came from. It's Unbelievable. As, it's as simple as that. It's just, it's a nice reverse engineering of it all, isn't it? Yeah, but again, <laughs> not planned out, you know, and like the first event was supposed to be in the lecture theater. And also university, I'd blag them to give me the lecture theatre for free, uh, based on me saying that also university, put that, those guys being a sponsor. The idea then was to pull in a few speakers. Uh, a good friend of mine worked in Google in Dublin. He would have helped me with a few speakers, you know, coming up. So that was the idea. Went to an organisation here in Belfast, NYSE Technologies. Again, pitched for some money, pretty much to cover the cost of sandwiches and a cup of tea and a cup of coffee. Yeah. Didn't mention how much money I want. And then they came back with a sum which was probably 10 times what I actually needed. <laughs> So all of a sudden, I had all this money, and uh, I went to myself, right, well, what do I now do with this? Went and booked Titanic Belfast. Nice. And it, it just spiraled from there, you know. So again, no plan for that. And never meant to be more than a one-off event, you know. Yeah. I always do a quick Google of guests and try to figure out, you know, any interesting talking points. Something came up about something to do with the New York Stock Exchange and a certain amount of money. You asking for, they said they didn't have money and then you asked for it, something like that? Yeah, that was it. So literally through a contact, there was a girl called uh, Claire McIntyre who worked in NYSE Technologies. Uh, and I was introduced to her through a, a common um, contact. Uh, and the basis that, you know, they, those guys may be involved in helping out with this event thing that you're thinking about doing was pretty much the run of it. So I went in and pitched the idea. Really, fortunately, there was a new CEO who just joined NYSE Technologies based in New York, a guy called John Robson. And he through Claire's guidance, uh, was starting to ramp up the whole profile of NYSE Technologies. The timing was just bang on. They were big, big time focused on acquiring talent in the organization mm. for, for its growth. So they seen this as a really good opportunity to raise the profile. So again, I went in, just as I was saying there, pitched at the Claire, but didn't mention the amount of money. And I think the amount of money I was looking for was like five or 600 quid. Yeah. But like, these guys are used to dealing with New York budgets, you know what I mean? And, and yeah. Claire came back and said, look, here's as much as we can give. It mightn't be what you want, but it's as much as we can give. So yeah. At the time, I did the whole poker face, you know, walked out of the <laughs> office and went, right, what do I, what do I do now? So that was one of the events. Like, to be fair to Claire, you know, she was brilliant. And like, even through the whole event, that first event that we ran, like, you know, even guide, she did events, corporate events through her role in NYSE Technologies. So the input that she had in that event was huge. And one of the things that she said to me a couple of weeks later was, um, you know, our new CEO, John Robson, hadn't been to the Belfast office yet. They were trying to get him over. Um, would he be able to speak at the event? And I was sitting there nice. with the money you guys put in. He can do whatever he wants. He can do an Irish dance at the event if he wants. And Claire said, well, you want to need to pitch to him and, and win him over, you know? I was like, yeah, sure. What do you want? You know, do a PDF or send him an email? And she said, no, no, you've got to go to New York and pitch what? to him. What? So I was like, right, I'd never been in New York before. Um, and I was sitting going, right, okay. And I was sitting thinking, right, well, uh, sounds good. Okay, I'll just have to do this. And they end up, NYSE Technologies flew me to New York to pitch to John Robson. 
went in. It was supposed to be a 15 minute pitch. I had done my wee cool slide deck, <laughs> etc. Brought him over a gift and I ended up sitting with him in total for about an hour and a half. And about an hour in, he said, so yeah, yeah let, let's do this. And he said, look, what's, when are you launching the event? And I said, oh, we're actually launching it next week. There's a pretty cool building in, Tit- in Belfast, Titanic Belfast. It was just recently opened around that time. And I was explaining to him the cool facade and how it was the height of the buy of the ship and yeah, yeah. trying to make it sound really impressive. And he said, well, do you want to launch it now from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange? <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> so he literally, I had no tie on. I had that you have to have a tie on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. He got me a tie from one of the guys out in the floor put the tie on, he got his PA uh, to book a photographer. Ten minutes later, we're down the floor of the New York Stock Exchange launching Digital DNA. So Unbelievable. All these really random events. Um, that's that's maybe what you're alluding to, certainly from the money side of it, and then how that story spiraled on, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, with someone write in a question that's connected to all of this, really simply, say Gareth seems like he's an easy way of reaching out to people and asking for help and support he doesn't seem to overanalyze it. Their question was, is this something that comes naturally or have you developed this through skill, trial, and error? Uh, it's, it's, there's, there's no methodical approach as nice as it would be. Um, I was chatting to someone, myself and a new business partner of mine, we're doing a talk back home actually in Kilkeel just last Wednesday and something similar was asked, you know, because people sort of see, you know, arguably what I've done with, with some decent relationships. And like I remember, especially in City Hall, like, I remember, you know, feeling so awkward, you know, and so, like, you know, the imposter syndrome and like, oh, really yeah. insecure about, you know, walking into a room. And part of it was the fact that I was young, you know, like, in their earliest 20s, mid-20s, walking into a room of people who were a lot older, who I thought were a lot wiser, who I thought were a lot more experienced. And being really, not that they were trying to intimidate me, but I just felt intimidated. And bearing in mind, like, I was the, you know, the, the, the kid who had failed, you know what I mean? I was the kid who was scraping through, you know, so I had massive imposter syndrome. And I remember going into that room and literally going in and feeling really awkward and like ringing my dad on the phone. Like the amount of phone calls he would have got from me purely because I didn't want to stand there by myself. So I would have went and pretended to be on the phone. Sometimes actually pretended as no one was on the other end of the phone uh, just because I felt so awkward. And there's sometimes, like even now, well, I suppose not in this past couple of years, but certainly back two, three, four years ago, whereby the same thing would happen again. You go into an event, you know, I would go into Titanic Belfast or even you'd be at an event maybe in London or whatever and you walk into a room and you've all these people and you've got that buzz and people are chatting and laughing and you're just looking at the room going, where do I start? You know, yeah. This is so intimidating, you yeah. know? And like, I'd be very different now. Now I'm relaxed in that. I just know whenever you go into a room, like I just go up and have the crack with someone, you know, and usually it involves going to a bar and buying a beer and all of a sudden you'll <laughs> be chatting to someone. But for me, you know, it's, it's important to put that out there because people just think it comes, it doesn't come naturally. It really doesn't. Um, and the thing for me is, is, you know, literally just having the crack. You asked the conversation earlier on, I asked the question earlier on about Liam Neeson, you know, the elevator pitch. Like I would never go in and hit anybody with an elevator pitch. And yeah, that was yeah. your way of trying to work out, you know, how do I, would I describe myself? But I just go in and have it. And then it just comes out. You know what I mean? And, and if there's yeah. something in it, it'll come out. And the key thing is what's the win-win? And that's the thing for me, mm. you know, like just work out and don't, be, don't overanalyze it, overcomplicate it. What's the win-win? And for me, if, if you can work out how you can help someone whereby they win and maybe not straight away, but in time, you know, maybe there's a win for you. Maybe there's not. That's where it comes out. So there yeah. is no methodical approach. Um, you know, like one of the, my business partner, we were out in New York, um, last week and it was a big rush to try and get business cards done for this new venture that we have. And, you know, he went and got them all done and all nailed and, um, arrived into the hotel. He, I was coming up from Atlanta. He was already there and I came in. There was the business cards beside the, you know, the, the bedside cabinet. And I was like, great business cards. Like, I, st- I don't even know where those business cards are now. So I, like, <laughs> I shouldn't put them into my pocket, hand them out, like, conf- you know, running around the room. Yeah. It just doesn't come natural, you know? Yeah. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but there, there is no methodical approach for me, to, to be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, the reason why the question is so interesting for me is, I think, I don't know if it's necessarily an ordinary thing or not, but there is a real perceived shame or perceived insecurity about asking. Yeah. Whereas, you know, <clears throat> You mentioned New York. We were talking before the podcast. You know, I spent three years in New York and it's just a different culture where actually people have no problem asking for stuff. Yeah. So how can people kind of, I was going to say start exercising that muscle. Obviously the answer is to start asking, but talk to me more about that win-win. Talk to me more about how it's actually all about value and making sure that the value is in it for the other person on the other end. Yeah. So the, the ask is, I suppose, a different, it's, it's a different element to the relationship side of it in that, um, sorry, let me reformulate that. At what point do you ask? 
think once you know that, once you know that the person you're talking to is akin to you, do you know what I mean? You, you, we will all meet people. And like, I've had conversations where you're 10 minutes into a coffee in a coffee shop and the meeting just, for whatever reason, has to last an hour, right? That's just the way it has to be. <laughs> and you're 10 minutes in and you just know that it's a waste of conversation. Um, one, because the person isn't on the same wavelength. I don't mean that to sound rude and that just what they're trying to achieve is very different from what you're trying to, and you just know they're not one of your people. Do you know what, yeah, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Other meetings you go into and like 10, 15 minutes in, and especially in the early days, whenever people were just being brutal with me, you know, and like they were just on the take. And whenever they realized within 10 minutes, especially in the early, that I had nothing to offer them, like they were just rude, sometimes just rude, you know? So, so, so to your question, how do you know when to ask? It's like anything, you know, you ask when the time's right. You ask whenever you feel you've got some sort of rapport with a person. Yeah. But the thing that I didn't realize arguably quick enough was that people like being asked for help. Mm. You know what I mean? And to your experience in New York, we were out last week. Like, you nearly didn't even have to ask. People were just offering. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, what yeah. can I do? How can I help you? Yeah. Like, we'd done a deal with a professional sports uh, outfit over in New York. And before the meeting ended, the guy spent the last five minutes just saying, who else can I help? You know, who, who else do you want to meet in the city? And that's what it's like out there. And for me, what I realized quite early on was asking for help. And one of the very first things I did, I'm not big into in in social media and posting and all and, and, and all of that. But one of the things I did do early on was, I came across this guy because I was at a talk. He has a guy called Park Okeja. He's now, I think he's now a senator in the Irish government. And I remember coming across a talk that he gave way back whereby he had founded a company called Air Iron. He was a teacher, uh, accountancy, finance background, and then founded this airline company called Air Iron, which he ended up selling to Aer Lingus. It was a mental story, but he had come from this traditional background, arguably like me, and gone on and done something pretty cool. And I remember just tweeting him and saying to him, Porik, I know you're in Galway. I'm in Belfast. I'd love to drive the whole way to Galway to meet you for a half hour cup of coffee. Yeah. Whatever number of characters I got that in. <laughs> and my thinking there was, listen, if he says no to a fella who's going to drive the whole way from <laughs> Belfast to Galway for a half hour cup of coffee. So I tried to make it nearly impossible for him to yeah. say no. And if he had said no, he would have been some ballot to be fair. <laughs> Excuse the language. So um, what he ended up doing was he replied to the tweet. And he says, look, Gareth, I'm going to be in Dublin in a few weeks. How about we get a cup of coffee? So I asked, that was my first arguably ever ask of someone wow. and it worked. And then whenever I met him, I said, look, Porik, I would love to get your support going forward whenever I need it. And again, we chatted through things and what I was doing at the time was at a sort of watershed. And he then, he messaged me out of the blue and said, listen, I'm up in, in uh, Steve Donard in a couple of weeks time. Do you want to meet up again? So that was probably the first time that I nice. started asking. And then you just realize even around Belfast, people want help. Do you know what I mean? And people, sorry, people are happy to help. So for me, just ask. You know what I mean? Yeah. But make sure the rapport is there, first of all. Make sure someone who you're, who you're happy to help come six months down the line or two years down the line. Incredible. You've already mentioned a wee bit about your latest venture. Just going to give you an opportunity just to kind of unpack that. Yeah, so that came about quite randomly. Working on this, it be two years, really quietly, actually. Um, you know, we talked there about the importance of relationships. You know, I was on a, on a, on a board of a really... A good local charity for a while and had done three or four years now and decided to look at doing something different and um, again within that sort of you know giving space with a charity and, and came across the Ireland funds who had known quite a bit about in terms of what they had did which is an organization set up in the US to drive pretty primarily US money into Ireland to help historically with the troubles and now more sort of community focused um, uh, projects and the thing for me there was the Ireland funds was the, the opportunity to, to do something good and put something back, which I believe in. But it then offered this whole international network. So that was why I got involved in the Ireland funds was those sort of two, two elements to it. And then through that, we, we set up a Belfast chapter and, uh, one of the guys in that Belfast chapter, a guy called Andrew Trimble, who's uh, an ex professional rugby player, played for Ireland and Ulster. I'm not big into my rugby, so I've been trying to, over the past two years, I'm <laughs> starting to become more and more aware of how big a deal he was, to, you know, not that I, I let him know that, but um, he he came to me, it was actually, we did an Ireland Funds 5k, it was up in Ormond Park, and I remember he WhatsApp me a couple of days before, saying, listen, love to catch you for five minutes, there's a, a tech thing that I'm looking at here, a bit of a problem we have in the in the club, simple thing, but technology might solve it, and I said, yeah, sure, give me a shout. So I remember standing in a normal park, just on a 5k run. He didn't do it. My face had busted red, even though it's only a 5k run. I'm struggling to breathe and he's then putting me through my paces of this, this sort of yeah. you know, challenge that they have at Ulster Rugby. 
And the challenge was pretty much focused around uh, the scheduling and the planning of generic team activity and then how that cascades down into personal player activity. And his issue as a player was that what Ulster do was very effective. They use whiteboards um, and massage, you know, whiteboards for massage, whiteboards for the, the weekly schedules to communicate what the team is doing on a weekly basis. And his issue was that, you know, that whiteboard, he'll go and take a picture of it. It might move, you know what I mean? Something might move back by half an hour, but he's got the static image in his phone. And then what needs to happen then is a WhatsApp gets sent out and he's trying to correlate the WhatsApp with the image that he has. And all of a sudden there's a little bit of sort of noise and chaos creeping yeah. into the schedule. Yeah. And his issue was that, you know, and bear in mind, this guy's learning from the Joe Schmitz of this world who have a very methodical engineer approach to performance. And his issue was, well, look, if... That chaos, and I say chaos in loose term, that sort of noise and cluttering chaos exists on a team about team team perspective. Uh, as a player, the, the individual player finds it very hard to plan out what it is they need to be doing on a weekly basis or longer term basis to execute come, come game day. Yeah. And Andrew's point was that for him who takes planning and that methodical approach to performance really seriously, how can they get that point whereby it's a lot more streamlined and a lot more efficient? whereby they can understand what the club, what the team is doing on a generic basis. But all of a sudden then he's got a tool through an app, for example, which will allow him to plan out his own performance. You know, whether that be kicking practice, throwing practice, you know, sprints, whatever that might be for the next game or the next series of games. Yeah. And what he wanted to be done is that when it come to game day, he was there, he was in the moment, hence the, the, the term Kairos, the Greek term Kairos. He was in the moment and ready to perform. And nice. Andrew, who I'm pretty sure is the most capped uh, Ulster player, ever played for Ireland you know so he's he's, he's done it yeah. his time he still talked about imposter syndrome standing on the side of the pitch which I find fascinating that is interesting so we took that concept uh, for the first year because Andrew was focused on other things and because I was we literally just engaged with the market the first thought was well what's everybody else doing Andrew you know just use that and we engaged with the market. I had some contacts in England and around soccer clubs, asked them. We went over to places like the Etihad campus, chatted to Man City directly. Awesome. Uh, lots of product discovery to try and work out, well, you know, what's being used and what might this look like. And that year really helped us. We feel understand the market. Yeah. And instead of running off building something which Andrew felt should be used for also rugby specifically, we yeah. took a step back and we said, well, look, what can we build here for elite sports teams across the world, really, you know, and like we were chatting with ice hockey clubs, we were chatting Incredible. with soccer and different sports to try and make sure we're building something out. And that's really where Kairos came from. So again, if you tap back to the relationship piece, I got involved in the Ireland funds to look at a different network of individuals, internationally focused. Never thought of Andrew Trimble even having an interest in business, yeah. <laughs> even though he was in the middle of doing a finance master's, even at that point in time. Wow. And that's where it sort of spawned from. And then all the while with digital DNA, what I had realized with digital DNA was that it was doing randomly what I had hoped it would do, building up that knowledge and relationships. And then I realized there was a cracking team there. And then after a while, I myself and the business partner thought, well, if we can get that team to really take digital DNA forward, then that'll allow me to go and focus on other things while yeah. making sure it continued to grow. Yeah. And that's really where Kairos sort of, you know, sort of came from, to be fair. That's awesome. Hey, that's, and what point, what point are you at? Yeah, we're, it's been, it's, the past year has been, um, full throttle, to be honest. You yeah. Know? Like, I suppose <laughs> after a year, we kept having these conversations and, you know, like again, asking for help. Like we're very good at asking for help even for this. And we've got a couple of cracking mentors and one mentor in particular, you know, a, a guy called Sean Duffy from Ernst & Young, a br brilliant guy. We met with him and, you know, we're telling him what we've done and we've just spoken to Michael O'Neill and we've just spoken to Pep Guardiola's assistant coach. And we've just done this and we've just met with, with uh, Joe Schmidt. I'm doing those name dropping here, by the way, but we've just, <laughs> we've just we've met with all these people, you know, and trying to, you know, impress him as to how great we were doing and, he pretty much says, well, when he's going to start, when are you going to get real lads? You know, when are you, when are you going to get off the ego trip? You know, and his point was, was sound and it was a case of, listen, you're meeting with all the, at what point, what more do you need to hear to let yeah. you know you're onto something? Yeah. And at what point are you going to get serious and stop messing about? Yeah. And that wasn't his, his words when paraphrasing and he was bang on, right? Yeah. And we just went, right, let's do it. You know? <laughs> um, and again, hadn't a clue what to do, but we then went to Techstart and we uh, applied to them for proof of concept funding. Which is pretty much they give you 10k to prove the concept, pitch to them, got the 10k, use that to take the initial concepts, the initial, you know, the problem, what we were starting to look at at the solution, work with a cracking company uh, across from where you're based here in Roma Baths called Dawson Andrews. 
worked with them and they were phenomenal at helping us understand what we were actually trying to do. And we took that and we then designed out some screens and some visuals. And then we actually decided to put that in that website. Nice. Um, so kairostech.io, that's the website today as of whatever date today is, the 5th of February. That's the date uh, of, uh, that's the, the website that exists from last May. And the idea was to have a physical presence. That, yeah. So whenever we were chatting to people, something credible existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We then went from there and we applied for the proof of concept plus, um, which was another 25K. And we used that to build out, you know, in the tech world, I think called an MVP, minimal viable product. The first thing you can actually get into market with. We got a, uh, we did a trial with that in the summer with the Ireland camp down in Carton House. Nice. Feedback from that was, yeah, look, lots of, you can see lots of ways by how it can improve, but yeah, you're solving a really a basic problem here, you know, so this That's is awesome. good stuff. And then we built, we, we finished off the MVP and we ended up, um, again, making that money stretch. You know, again, Andrew being from Korean, me being from Kilkeel, quite tight with <laughs> a pound. Dawson Andrew's been absolutely brilliant. We made that 35k really stretched to the point whereby we had something which was close to market. Nice. We hadn't actually engaged with Ulster Rugby. Uh, Andrew was reluctant to do so because he just, it was just too close to home. And then they got wind of what we were doing. They said to Andrew, listen, can we have it? And we were like, gee, this thing isn't ready for market yeah, yet. Yeah. And then we just thought, you know what? Price of perfection. Let's just get it in there. Yeah. So we spent a couple of days tweaking it and it's been in Ulster now for 10 weeks. Wow. Um, and we've just, uh, we started an investment round trying to bring an investment. And uh, we started that last September. We had hoped to close it by March, but we ended up closing it um, literally just after Christmas, which was a lot earlier than we thought. Brilliant. We're now building out a tech team. So we've just hired a VP of engineering. We're trying to hire a cracking team of senior uh, front-end, back-end engineers and a number of mid-tier uh, senior, sorry, mid-tier uh, front-end, back-end uh, engineers. And we're trying to build out that team now. And we've just released this week the next version into Ulster Rugby. And Class. now we're doing a, a rebrand with Pale Blue Dot. Another cracking company in Belfast here, and we're just getting ready to go to market. Um, literally in the next couple of weeks. Unbelievable! Here it's all kicking off. It is. Oh, it's good fun. It's good fun <laughs> though as well. You know, and a lot of the mistakes that you know we've made in the past, we're hopefully not making the same mistake again, which is which is good. You know, it's cool. Yeah, just looking to land the plane here and kind of tying it off with some stock questions I usually ask people. But just before I do that, it's more of a personal question from me. I suppose you've kind of gone from. I mean, you still are, you know, having to meet with decision makers and get them to kind of give you the keys to unlock the doors you need, whether it's investment, whether it's access to network, whatever. But in some ways, you also have become the decision maker yourself, as in there's been somewhat of a rule reversal where now there's probably a lot of people coming to you and who maybe, hey, can you get, can, can I grab a coffee with you? Can you look over this for me? Can you do this? Can you do that? My question is for you, how do you prioritize? How do you make those decisions? How do you decide what to involve yourself in and what not to involve yourself in? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the most the most important commodity I feel that we have is time. Yeah, uh, it's, the, it's the one thing that we can't generate more of. Um, so I would be very, like, very anal on time. You know, um, I learned that the hard way. You know, like all those coffees that I used to have, the amount of time that was wasted. You know, with with me not understanding what I even wanted from that coffee, never mind arguably the individual that I was meeting. So time is critically important. Um, yeah, a lot of people, like, the reality was I spent years asking for help. So the hardest thing in the world for me to do is not to try and help someone every day <laughs> ask for help. Um, like, I don't know what, even a talk that we did, I was mentioned earlier about the talk that we did in Kilkeel. One of the ladies in the room is an interior designer and she came up to me afterwards and she said to me, listen, I really love to pick your brains. And I'm sitting going, I know nothing about interior yeah, design yeah. as my wife will, will testify <laughs> to. But whenever she said to me, help, like my first instinct was, how can I help this person? You know, and I said, look, ping me a message. She pinged me a message on LinkedIn. And my first tactic is work out how serious people are. Because the easiest thing in the world is to ping someone a really lazy message asking them for help. But my thing is to validate how serious they are. So I will go back straight away and ask them a number of questions just to work out how serious they are. What is it you're trying to sell? Who are you trying to sell it to? What traction have you had and what makes you different? Something along, yep. not, that sounds very methodical, something along those yep. sorts of lines. Because if they're not really on the ball with that, meeting with me isn't going to really help, you know? Yeah, yeah. So um, that helps tease out a few people. And the, the people who are genuine will come back. You know what I mean? yeah. And then again, it may be me just connecting with a few different people or it may be meeting for a cup of coffee. The cup of coffees are the killer because that's the thing that takes up you know, mm. an hour at a time. 
and you can't be rude and meet with someone for 30 minutes because it just comes across rude and, oh, and a bit blunt. <laughs> so, uh, so that's the thing. So like, yeah, like I'm keen to help people as, as best I can. And the reality is, you know, if you help people, you know, in two years time, three years time, if you're helping them be successful, you know, they're going to be coming back arguably helping me be successful in whatever that's I'm it. doing at that point in time. So that's the stuff that I keep mentoring and or keep uh, learning. And the reason mentoring came out there was because even through formal mechanisms, a really good friend of mine, Gareth Neal, uh, a cracking guy here in Belfast, who just wants to give back after being hugely successful with a company that he exited from. And he worked with Ulster University after seeing a gap to help mentor uh, post-grad students. Uh, so he set up a mentoring program, asked me would I join it. Like right now I'm working with an individual, uh, Matt, who is doing an MBA, which, um, and a bit of similarity there because I did that course a couple of years ago. He's working, he's doing the MBA and he set up his own business. And I'm now mentoring him. So I'm meeting Matt on a monthly basis. Class. It's brilliant because you're having a chat with him. He, know, you know, all I'm doing is asking him questions. Yeah. I mean, he's working it out himself and he's coming back a month later with a fire in his belly and ready to go again. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so time is your most important commodity and it is hard to balance it. You know what I mean? And sometimes you meet with someone for coffee because you think you can add real value. Other times you might just introduce them to someone who's better placed. It just depends, you know. Brilliant. So you are, I hate the term networker, but you are great with people. We'll put it like that. One of the stock questions we always ask is if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for coffee, dead or alive. Who would you take and why? Northern Ireland. I've probably taken them out for coffee already, to be fair. <laughs> um, is there anyone that's still on the list? Or is there maybe someone who, you know, because they lived in a different time, you would have loved to have the opportunity to talk to? Cheaper, uh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm not, honestly, because of what I've been doing since 2013, if there's someone who I really wanted to speak to, I would have, <laughs> you got, done I, it. I would have tortured them, but now I put it that way. <laughs> Um, and there's still some phenomenal people here. I probably don't even know we're doing amazing things out there. But anybody, um, like for me now, for me now, there's some phenomenal people who have done ridiculous things over the years. Um, like now I'm just looking at, right, like, and it's arguably cliche, who's the next generation coming through? Like there's some unbelievably ridiculous young people out there who are doing ridiculous things, you know, and like, I talk, talk to you about Dawson Andrews and, and what, you know, them building out what we've done. The guy who runs that is a phenomenal team, but the guy who pretty much spearheads that is a 24 year old guy. And like, you know, I'm privy to what his company is doing. And like, it is unbelievable, you yeah. know, and I'm sitting thinking now, yeah, you know, the, the old brigade, you know, who are still doing amazing things and helping to influence what the next generation are doing, which is ridiculous. But I'm sitting looking, who's the next generation yeah. coming through? You know, <laughs> as I start to get a bit older and a bit more, you know, um, you know, backward in what I'm doing, how can I learn from from those people? You know, so. Um, but again, like for me, you know, the question, you know, people would say, well, "How do you meet with someone? How do you get to that person?" It really is the easiest thing in the world. You just set a plan and just go to them. You know, so yeah. if there was someone I wanted to meet, I'm pretty sure uh, I could I could get there by yeah. questioning a few individuals. Here, it's a good answer, really good answer. Uh, last question, kind of flipping that on its head. If you could take yourself out for coffee, let's say when you were 18, just finished your A-levels, you know, you just got your A in maths, what advice would you give yourself or what would you say to him? If you had him for an hour, because it has to last an hour, of course. That's right, it has to last an hour. <laughs> I'll paraphrase, but this doesn't last an hour. Um, I suppose the, the learnings for me is, you know, is something around that insecurity play, you know, like that held me back for so long. And to an extent, rightly so. Like, I wasn't an achiever, you know, especially at school and all those things. So I did have that inferiority complex, you know. And then what, my thing was that whenever I walked into a room, my initial assumption was that everybody in that room knew more than me, were better experienced than me and all the rest, you know. And like looking back now, it wasn't the case, you know. Um, yeah, there were some amazing people who were better and who were more experienced, but not everybody was. So that insecurity play, just, you know, the old cliche, believing in yourself, you know, and having confidence in your own ability, you know. So there would be that. And the other thing would be not to overcomplicate things. You know, that was a huge feeling on my part. And um, that first year I mentioned earlier, leaving City Hall and, you know, that first year, a year later, being in a, in a pretty rubbish place, you know, and a lot of that was overcomplicating things, you know. And, yeah. you know, whether that be from business, understanding my own business finances, to trying to do a deal, to try, you know, all these, it's overcomplicating it. And if you look at some of the most successful people in the world, they've kept it really, really simple. Yeah, big time. You know, so that would be, a, that would be something as well. And the other side of it is from a relationship perspective, again, don't overthink that. Just go out and have a bit of fun. You know, we talked about being out in New York last week. I've been doing that trip every January with part of the Ireland funds. Um, I think it's about three or four years now. Um, 
And there's just there's just a phenomenal bunch of people, you know what I mean? And I don't go out there looking at a delegate list going, right, oh, I must get to that person and I'm going to land this question to them and hopefully get that. You just go out and have a bit of fun, you know, and yeah. literally, you know, and, and that's the thing is have a bit of fun, have a bit of crack and just be just be yourself. And you find those opportunities will just come, I think. So that might, might be the best advice in the world, but there are three things that, that would have helped me. There you go. Well, here, thank you very much for sharing your time today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. No, thank you, Matt. Oh, man. Incredible stuff. Absolutely unbelievable. So here, Gareth, thank you very much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you sharing everything that you did share. Ladies and gentlemen listening, really appreciate you guys. Thank you very much for making it through to the very end. I know I learned a lot in this conversation. I know that you did too. That's why I kept on listening. And you know what a great lesson about relationships in an age where it can be very tempting to try to just network, network, network. And you know, we've got social media and we're connecting to people flat out on LinkedIn or whatever it is to actually take the time to see where the value is and to see how we can take a genuine approach and actually develop relationships that matter. I just love that. It's my big takeaway from the show. Would love to hear what yours is. Been getting some incredible uh, listener mail. Is that a thing? Makes, makes me feel like I'm on Blue Peter. Uh, you know, that all these wee handwritten notes are coming in. <laughs> Emails, uh, Matthew at bestofbelfast.org of just people really sharing what you're getting out of the show. This is so helpful for me. It helps me kind of curate and shape the future of the show it helps me kind of dictate the types of people i'm going to get on to interview and it really helps the types of questions that i know you guys are interested in so if you are interested in reaching out there's your invitation it's right there would you like to develop a genuine relationship (laughs) oh dear sure you got to you gotta do it if you'd like to see a photo of Gareth and find out some of his contact information, social media profiles, all that sort of stuff, or sign up to your email newsletter, you can do so at bestofbelfast.org. Guys, that's it from me. Thank you very much for listening. Really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us and see you next Monday morning. All right. Thanks again and see you next time. Hi, guys. I'm Rob and I'm from Queensland and I'm a proud member of the Best of Belfast Producers Club. I listen to the podcast for a number of reasons. I love Belfast, Northern Ireland and the country and the people in it. I have a connection with Northern Ireland as our family came to Australia in the 1800s from the beautiful county of Fermanagh. I love what's going on in Belfast, the entrepreneurs, the innovation, the technology and the spirit. My favourite podcast is definitely the Tim Brundle episode, although I do have many other favourites. I support the podcast financially because I believe that quality work deserves fair financial support. It's important that we continue to hear about the amazing people of Northern Ireland and what they are achieving. So if you've been sitting on the fence about joining the Producers Club and you would really miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't here, as I would, I highly recommend considering joining today. You can do so over at bestofbelfast.org. And I look forward to seeing you in the WhatsApp group soon.